I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, Working, What We Do All Day. What makes a good job good? Is it the paycheck, the schedule, the stability? It's all of that. And one more thing, too. A good job is one where you feel seen and valued. Today, we're talking with executive producer and director Caroline Sue. What brings you joy in work? What gives you purpose? What makes a good job good? These are the questions at the center of working, what we do all day. The series explores the ways in which we find meaning in our work and how our experiences and struggles connect us on a human level. From the entry-level employees to the chief executive officer, working what we do all day introduces us to several workers trying to make it in an ever-changing world. They also discuss what makes a good job with President Barack Obama to answer the question, is our work who we are or is it just a paycheck? From the service entrance all the way to the C-suite, what would it tell us about how we're connected, about our own place in the world? And I'm joined now by executive producer and director, Caroline Sue. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So Barack and Michelle Obama are executive producers for Working, but remind us of the inspiration for this documentary. So um, the president, I believe, wanted to do a project about work. Um, the series was really his baby. It's something he really cares about, this issue, um, obviously, in his presidency. And so uh, I was brought on to develop it and then um, turn it into a series. So, um, yeah, so that's how I came to it. So throughout the four episodes, we meet workers at various levels of three different companies, three different industries. There's a luxury hotel in Manhattan, a healthcare provider who offers home visits to the elderly, and a tech startup building self-driving cars. So can you tell me about the casting for the series, not just the businesses, but also the employees that you profiled? Sure. So, you know, obviously it's kind of all in the casting, the success of a series like this. You need people who are... You know, we were looking for people who could be philosophical about their work and their and their lives. And we also wanted to represent kind of an array of different kinds of jobs and people of different ages and different points in their life. So it really was this crazy puzzle that we were putting together, you know, because everything had to everyone had to work with everyone else. No, we didn't want to have any. Uh, people who are too similar. And we also wanted to focus on companies uh, that did the kind of work that will employ people in the future, just to give people in the audience an idea of, okay, what does the future of work look like? What are the jobs? What are good jobs? What are bad jobs? What can people expect? So first we just, we cast the companies, we got access to the companies. And then from there, we, you know, spoke to 
a bunch of different people and tried to identify um, who we would film. It was interesting to me how sometimes the people intersected with one another uh, in the various episodes, and then you would sort of understand how they're, you know, after hearing from one, and then like the next episode might be about their boss and watching them interact with each other was a very interesting dynamic after hearing the experience of the worker before. Throughout the episodes, we do have these very surprising moments. And in one, you know, we meet Randy as she's interviewed for a job at home care in Mississippi. I'm going to tell you to do this cook, cleans the kitchen, you run errors for the client, bathing, shaving, shampoo, hair, vacuum, we sweep, some bedridden, some you may have to turn, you may have to change diapers. Medicaid is how we get paid, so you have to have a nationwide background check, you have to have CPR, first aid, we can call you at any time to do a drug test. By you being a new beginning, everything you start, start with $9 an hour, are you, are you satisfied with that? And I found myself thinking, am I okay with that? You know, is the audience okay with that? Was it important to you to get wages into this series, like, right away? Oh, definitely. I think when we were thinking about what makes a good job, I think there are a bunch of different factors. But first and foremost, really, is pay when it comes right down to it. It was interesting filming that scene because it was actually uh, Miss Stephanie who was doing the orientation. And she mentioned all of these very involved tasks that Randy would have to do. Not only cleaning, but also, you know, you have to turn the patient over. Anyone who's ever tried to turn someone over realizes how that is such a um, a very difficult thing to do and you need to have knowledge and training to do that. So, you know, the requirements are very complicated. Also, you have to do a background check, which you have to pay for yourself. So it's it was a shocking kind of end to the litany of of tasks when she says that there it's only for nine dollars an hour. Yeah. It's hard not to notice that your documentary doesn't just focus on pay, but it also focuses on what those wages look like in people's lives. Mm -hmm. How important was it for you to, you know, show us these workers at home, but also on the golf course, also on the, you know, balcony of their penthouse? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, work. So work ripples out. It's kind of the center in a lot of ways of our lives, arguably. And so everything stems from that. I mean, uh, where what kind of job you have determines for most people where you live, what kind of house you have, what kind of schools your children can go to. And we wanted to kind of show that work is not just about when you're in the office or the work itself, but it it, it determines like really all the important factors of your life. So we meet Elba, a housekeeper at the Pierre Hotel. Um, at one point, we see her with a group of colleagues, cooks, maintenance people, other housekeepers um, chatting in the kitchen. Many appear to be first-generation Americans. They talk about prior jobs, how they made less money working, in many cases, much harder jobs elsewhere. But their longevity at the hotel has brought a lot of stability to their lives. And a big reason for that is that the workers there are unionized. Can you talk about that exploration of the impact of that private sector unionization at a place like a hotel? Yeah, I think, you know, in New York, I learned that a lot of hotels are closing now. You know, some of the big hotels are closing. And you know, in New York, you I think you have to wherever you work, you have to be part of a union um, in, in most of the hotels. So that just helps protect you from all of the changes going on in the world. So being part of the, a union really gives your life stability. I mean, Elba is able to, you know, have this beautiful home and 
spoil her children or, you know, to the point where she worries about whether they don't realize how hard it is to make it. And I think, you know, it even union stability, the stability that unions give even means that a lot of people at the pier are actually married to each other. They've met, they've worked there long enough that they've like created a whole family there um, figuratively and literally they've met their spouses there. So Elba met her, I mean, Elba met her spouse before, but they both work there. Beverly um, met her second husband there. So it really, I mean, having, having that kind of stability can also really shape your whole life. Yeah. It didn't escape my notice, though, that these service workers worked for decades in these jobs before they sort of saw that stability. You know, it's like we we did have one person in the kitchen there who said that she still had lots of debt because she was like relatively mm-hmm, yeah. new to the job. And, you know, it's it it still does take years and years and years and years at a unionized job to be able to to build that kind of stability. And some would argue that the economy has changed. That might not be possible in the future. Right. Yeah, I mean, a lot of jobs now are contract jobs, so you don't um, have the protections that you would if you were in a union job. So Carmen, who's also in the first episode, who's an Uber Eats driver, she has no, you know, protection from the whims of the market and what happens. So let's talk about your host and executive producer, uh, former President Barack Obama. What is the biggest challenge? of having a former president be the talent at the center of a series like this. Yeah, it is a gift that comes with many logistical challenges. I mean, it's fascinating to see his Secret Service team kind of enter. I mean, he, you know, not by choice has to travel with um, this huge entourage of people. And his, you know, we were warned many times by um, people who've worked with him before that, you know, when he enters a room, it's it, it, it changes things. My name is Barack Obama, and I'm your lunch oh, really? delivery person. <laughs> is this Ms. Bailey? Yes, Mr. President. How are you? I'm doing great. Make sure that is what you ordered. It's presidential, so I'm, I'm well, sure it was what I wanted. How are you it doing? It changes the atmosphere. People have really crazy reactions to him of excitement and nervousness and... Um, So it's both, you know, kind of figuring out how to maneuver through these kind of small spaces like a supermarket with with the Secret Service, but also just the what his kind of star power does. I can imagine that making a documentary like this can be demanding. I mean, I know that it is sometimes very boring, too. I mean, there's a lot of getting ready and waiting, um, you know, setting up lighting, having someone do the voiceovers over and over again. Did you feel empowered uh, to tell, you know, former President Barack Obama, okay, just hang out, wait, (laughs) do that again. Yeah, we tried to be like a Navy SEAL operation, so there would be no waiting on his part. We didn't (laughs) want to miss, uh, we wanted to use every minute of his time uh, judiciously because also he has a lot more important things to do. (laughs) So we were totally on. There was no waiting. There was no resting. Our whole crew was on high alert and... um, you know, we had the best crew, like total professionals, and uh, they really made it uh, possible. There were scenes where I thought, you know, oh, Lord, they just put him in an elevator by himself with a camera person or in the front seat of a driverless car. And I thought, um, I wonder if there's a Secret Service agent, like, losing their mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is pretty cool. 
This is like the Invisible Man sitting here. <laughs> we call it the Aurora Driver, but open to naming suggestions. You know, I guess <laughs> one of his nicknames is No Drama, and his whole team has that level of calm. No chaos, no raised voices, always polite. So um, they didn't betray any kind of over-concern about what we were doing. Um, and we were lucky to, like, you know, we really wanted to, him to be in situations that were kind of new and fun. He is no drama, but he is, of course, the former president of the United States. And there are several moments where he talks about how, like, for lack of a better, more accurate expression, he really is in many ways out of touch with a regular worker's experience. He hasn't, you know, been allowed to drive himself for many, many years, since 2008, presumably. What was it like to watch him have these conversations with people at their jobs on the ground and when he has to, like, admit, like, I don't really do this? You know, he was really enthusiastic and eager to, like, go out there and be there and be and kind of interview people like Studs and kind of I think he gets a lot of pleasure in that. And this afforded him an opportunity to actually just go just talk to people and just in a way, you know, we tried to create a bubble where it was as normal (laughs) as possible, given the crazy, you know, secret service around. And um, so he he that's, I think, one of his strengths that maybe, you know, once you're have been president, it becomes harder to actually just talk to, you know, everyday people. But when we were developing the show, he talked about kind of the luminosity of people, a phrase that really didn't have any meaning to me then. But then seeing him talk to people, you really do see how, um, I don't know, just people's humanity and layers, um, he can kind of draw them out. Yeah, I mean, there is this lovely scene in the Piggly Wiggly with Randy in which, Mm -hmm. you know, she asks him a question. She asks him if he's at peace. I got a question for you. Okay, go ahead. Are you at peace now? Am I at peace? You know, I actually am feel pretty good. I've achieved most of the goals I set. My kids are kept. Mm-hmm. We got a nice house with a nice porch. Rocking chair. We got rocking chairs. Okay. It has to do with more than just me. I worry about the next generation. That's my answer. Can you talk about that moment? How did you react when you saw that? That was just kind of a draw, jaw-dropping moment. I mean, we really didn't prep Randy at all. All we said was, because we did want it to be totally natural and real, all we said to her is, you know, you could ask him a question if you want. Just think what you would want to ask him. And she has a very kind of old soul way about her. So, you know, that question coming from her made total sense. But we were all kind of, it was like one of those moments when you're filming, like, that really stands out and you feel like, oh, I'm witnessing something really special. So in Pittsburgh, we hear conversations about how the loss of the mills and the rise of the malls and this influx of tech has affected the community and the economy. Is the point that there are larger forces working against workers that affect their livelihood, you know, keep them from achieving this like so-called American dream? Yeah, I mean, I think the series is meant to show how 
things are the way they are because of choices that we've made as a society. And therefore, you know, it's possible to improve any situation by, you know, our own actions. So I think there is a um, tendency to kind of like demonize the boss or people at the top, but we really wanted to show that even the people at the top, they, their power is limited also. So Luke is the contract tech worker in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. His philosophy and work seems to be, you know, I'll work for a paycheck, but my passion is music production. Mm -hmm. There's this really interesting scene to me around the dinner table, which is shows this generational divide. His parents seem a little less supportive of his, you know, what they see as less pragmatic side of his dreams. I think we definitely said, you're not going to be able to go into music. You have to find a day job. You'll never be able to make a living in the arts. The odds are in your favor if you concentrate on science or math, which is what I try to tell all of my kids. I guess we were always fearful that uh, it wasn't sustaining. I, I think you have to, I like... I think you need encouragement to do these things. What did you take away from this really intimate conversation between this family? You know, it's a conversation that I think is just so familiar to so many people. I mean, so many of us while filming the show, like on on our crew, really identified with Luke and his family. I mean, I think that's what makes the series work is that people can identify with people in it. And so, you know, that idea that math and science, you should just you should do something practical. Don't do something that's where you can't make a living. I think that's something that like a lot of people's parents have said to them. You know, there is this thread throughout the, you know, throughout the series, this generational difference in thinking about the value of work. And Mm -hmm. President Obama talks about his own daughters wanting there to be value right away Mm -hmm. when they start their careers. And in that conversation with Luke's parents, I saw it too. You know, they seem to have puzzlement about like, why do young people like think they need to love their jobs right away? That's not how it was. But I can't, I found myself thinking, you know, when you see how hard it is to make a dollar stretch today, why not like think, I have to love my job. I mean, it's so hard to live. Why not feel like the love is important in work, right? Doesn't that sort of make a kind of sense? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm like a middle-aged person. And so I also, when people, when people say like, oh, I want to, you know, who are in their early 20s, just starting out, say they want meaning in their work. My, I immediately kind of balk and think like, okay, that's ridiculous. But working on the series, it actually makes you really question that and really think, okay, just because my experience was different does not mean that they're not right about something that why, yeah, why shouldn't it be that way? And I think it's a good thing to ask yourself and not just assume that that's not possible. There's sort of a hidden character in this series. The hidden character is food. <laughs> um, I, there's so many scenes in which people are gathered yeah. around food and meals. Sometimes it's a large group sharing a meal, like Elba's homemade lunch for the Pierre Hotel workers. There's Sheila's crawfish bake with her family. Mm-hmm. Uh, Francois has that intimate dinner party in his beautiful Manhattan apartment. Oh my God, I know why we should drink. This was given to me by the winemaker when I worked at the Forces in Milan. The gift from the guy who made it. We have a can of Budweiser we've been saving for 12 months now in our refrigerator. Come on over. Meanwhile, Randy is walking through the Piggly Wiggly, you know, pointing at how expensive a box of cereal is. Can you talk about about that? What is, what is revealed in these gatherings? What's revealed in these conversations around food? 
you can learn a lot about people by what they eat and how they eat. And it's also a place where people come together and just kind of talk and take a break from work and just kind of talk and maybe sometimes speak more kind of philosophically about what their life is about. And I, I mean, I'm a big eater. <laughs> I love, I'm always, I'm thinking about food. So I think part of it comes from that, but I also think, um, you know, it just, it's something that all of us do and it, and what we eat and how we eat is very revealing. I found the couple on the penthouse with their morning <laughs> beverage routine to be extremely interesting too. Uh -huh. sort of aspirational, you know, kind of living forever vibe of the green juice and the spicy water. Yeah. In the morning. <laughs> yeah, that was a little tip for people if they want to know how CEOs stay healthy. Yeah, no kidding. So one of the episodes is dedicated to the slice of workers that I certainly have never heard given a name before. It's called the 9%. Um, maybe we would have called them upper middle class in the past. Um, they have homes and secure jobs and money for extras. And I was surprised to learn the sum of their wealth is, is surprisingly enormous. I don't know how many workers envision themselves as future CEOs, but this seems to be the rung on the ladder that most people are actually striving for, right? That's totally true. Yeah. You know, it's kind of an amorphous. I mean, I think there are different uh, factors that contribute to being in the 9%. It's not only how much money you make, but it's kind of cultural, you know, how your proximity to power, how you see yourself. A lot of it is education also. And that's something we learned about while we were developing the series, like that people often in the 9% feel really concerned about the future and like the future of their children and feel very like, you know, things are shifting beneath their feet, but in reality are pretty stable. They are stable and they have choices. We hear that exactly, over and yeah. over and over again. We hear mm -hmm. Pierre's husband talking about how he can switch the character he's playing in a moment and he can be very French and like really yeah. like turn, you know, turn women around who are very angry. We hear our lobbyists talk about how he can kind of, you know, be one guy on the golf course and be another guy in a different situation. And, you know, we hear um, how someone can switch a job because they're suddenly no longer feeling like they're fulfilled <laughs> at their current job in a way that other workers just don't have those choices. That seems to be the differentiator with a 9%. That's totally true. Yeah, that's totally true. It's kind of, you know, they all share these intangible qualities of being able to handle people and kind of navigate and maneuver in a different way. There's also a striking difference in the possibilities for their kids. Sheila wants mm -hmm. her grandson to, she says, have a few things. I want him to have a good life, but also to be a productive citizen. I don't want him to just not have to do anything for it, but it would be good for him to have a little, little leeway, a little few privileges, you know, here and there. And meanwhile, Kenny's son imagines it'll be, you know, fairly reasonable for him to get a six-figure job because that's what he sees. If I could work my way up to like maybe 150000 a year, six figures, a little bit over there, I'd be fine, honestly. I think I can get there. It won't be that hard. You know, what does that say to you when you when you see this generational thinking? Yeah, I mean, um, I love William, by the way, Kenny's son. That was one of my favorite things to film, him sitting in bed playing video <laughs> games. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's, you know, some of it's just different people have different expectations. And there's a reality to the expectations. 
you know, whether you assume that you're going to be able to go to college or not, you don't know if you're going to be able to afford to go to college. You know, there are real, there's a real leg up that people get when their parents are in the 9%. One of the things that's very interesting about your casting here, and I, I'm, I'm, I know this was a deliberate choice, but there really is an interconnectivity between the workers and these verticals that you chose. Mm -hmm. There's a long way between Chandra mm -hmm. and Elba, the housekeeper, right? Mm -hmm. But if either are bad at their jobs, the business that they both rely on will not be successful. That becomes very clear. Is that, yes. is that, is that the case? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that was something we were trying to communicate is that just kind of the interconnectedness of everyone's work and how reliant we are on each other, even if we don't really realize it. And that's a big point that the president kind of directed us toward, like that, that this is like an important thing to have come through. And, you know, even on like set, it made us really aware of like, you know, if you're the production assistant and responsible for getting everyone coffees, it may seem silly, but like that keeps us going. And that's huge. Or if you're the AC who needs to make sure everything's prepared when the president is about to shoot and has only limited time. You know, all it makes you realize like how much your own success and your own kind of viability is dependent on other people doing their jobs well. So after listening to these workers' stories, President Obama is asked by the CEO what he thinks about the future of the workforce. And I was really surprised about the candor mm -hmm. that he expressed around his worry. So much of it has to do with people feeling disconnected from the certainties of an old life and not seeing a path to future. a firm ground in the future. And one of the ways in which we rebuild a sense of community that makes democracy work is if people feel they have the dignity of purpose. I worry if we have more and more young people who don't feel that, they'll find someplace else to, to get that. And so we've got some work to do both in strengthening democratic institutions, but I also think the economic and cultural and social ecosystems have to be strengthened. It made me wonder how much of this project was fueled for him by more of uh, that worry than it was by being inspired by Studs Turkle. Yeah, I can't speak for him, but I think, you know, this is his life's work. Like his wanting the world to be a certain way and reflect values that he thinks are important. That's been his life's work. So I don't think that ever goes away no matter what is happening. Mm -hmm. And I think the series is really just kind of in line with that. It's one piece of his work that he's continuing to do, even though he's no longer president. Hmm. So there is absolutely no judgment in this question at all, mm -hmm. I promise. But what? But do you think it says something about what different workers worry about when one asks the president about the future of workforce and another asks the president whether or not he's at peace? <laughs> um, I can imagine Randy asking the workforce question. I can also imagine Chandra asking the peace question, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the beauty of both of them is like, you know, it's their intelligence. And one of my favorite lines is actually when Randy's talking to her friends at McDonald's and she's like, if you can Google it, you know, you can know anything, which is true. I mean, you people, you know, I live in New York City, so I don't always have like a really firm grasp on what's going on in the rest of the country. But it's true. Like in this day and age, 
you know, people assume that like Mississippi, some people assume it's a backwater, but Randy's right. Like if you're young, you have access to all of this information. So at the Piggly Wiggly, President Obama seems to lay out his own curious question about whether we should see a job like his grandmother did as a means to a paycheck or as his kids' generation does as a means to personal fulfillment. Does he ever come down on one side or the other? Did you ever see him come down on one side or the other? You know, he says in the voiceover, like, about the personal fulfillment, like, maybe that's good. I mean, I think he's also of a generation which which has to, like, that has to get its mind around. It's not a natural thought that work should be for everyone at every stage meaningful. I don't think, you know, if you're under 30 years old, that's natural. That's like a natural idea to anyone. Mm. So I think he's interested in that thought. I think it's like compelling and puzzling. (laughs) But Well, it seems to me like the central question, one of the central questions of working, what we do all day is, you know, what makes a good job, you know, how our jobs make Mm -hmm. us feel. And I'm wondering, you know, have you thought about what you want viewers to reflect on about our own jobs when they watch this documentary? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, people, you know, it's good for people to ask themselves how they feel about their own work and what they want out of it. But I also think importantly, like the most important thing is to realize that there are human beings all around you who maybe you don't really see or pay attention to, but their whole, you know, big lives behind whatever job they're doing for you or near you, you know, that I think it made me, working on the series made me way more aware of the people around me. Well, we do see people whose jobs are lucrative, but not fulfilling, people whose jobs are fulfilling, but not lucrative, and maybe people whose jobs are some combination of both. I know that I've had jobs that were one side or the other or some combination of both. How would you describe your job? My job is, thankfully, I get to do mostly what I want to do. And, you know, I have the liberty to just spend a lot of time just thinking, which is what I enjoy. And um, But I've definitely spent most of my career doing all of the other work, <laughs> like doing the thankless work, doing the trying to serve someone else's kind of end goal or vision, which is really hard. And so, you know, I do, I am glad that I did spend so much time doing those jobs because I feel like hopefully maybe it makes me slightly better at my own job now, but um, you'd have to ask people I work with about that. (laughs) Well, I, I feel the same and I feel very lucky that part of my job today has been getting a chance to talk to you, Caroline Sue. Thank you so much for joining me to chat about your documentary. It's just fantastic. Thanks so much. Thank you. You had so many great, you came away with so much from the series. So I really, it makes me happy. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much again to executive producer and director, Caroline Sue. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, TV, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up as a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 